Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today, my guest will be Professor Melissa Walker of Converse College, and we're going to talk about the home front in the Civil War. This is part of a continuing series of conversations on the Civil War sponsored by the College of Arts and Sciences at USC, and it was recorded before a live audience at the university. We've talked a lot in the past about the war at sea and on the land in the Eastern Theater and the Western Theater, but what about the home front? That'll be our conversation topic for today, but first, your NPR news break. This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. This program was recorded at the University of South Carolina, where Conversations on the Civil War is a series sponsored by the College of Arts and Sciences. With us tonight is Dr. Melissa Walker, who is the George Dean Johnson, Jr. Professor of History at Converse College. (laughs) But more than that, Melissa is one of those college faculty who really feels a passion for the discipline and that it goes beyond the classroom. It's not just to teach the young folks at Converse, but it's also to host teacher institutes, to work with local historical societies and museums. And to me, that's a very special attribute that, quite frankly, not everybody in the profession shares, but Melissa does. She's also a wonderful scholar And, Melissa, I'm delighted to have you here tonight to talk about the home front in the South in 1864. Thank you for having me, Walter. I'm so delighted to be here. Let's start with this wonderful little book that you Mm co-edited on The Upcountry Goes to War. And there are a number of interesting letters from the women at home to the men at war that give us an idea of what folks were feeling back here in South Carolina in the last 18 months. Yes. I think you really start to see sentiment shift in the last 18 months. The war's dragged on, people are dealing with terrible shortages, and they've lost loved ones. The families that are included in this collection of letters, they end up losing three sons in the three different families. There are three sons who lose their lives. And that's beginning to take an enormous toll on them. And so although they're still committed to the Confederacy, at least most of them, they are starting to feel war-weary. And interestingly enough, by 1864, the letters from the home folks almost disappear from this collection because, I would guess, because they weren't being saved by the men at the front. Um, And so they weren't being carried home and preserved. But the men's letters were definitely preserved. We've talked about this before uh, with earlier programs. The Confederate mail service ironically worked. Mm Mm-hmm almost until until the very end. Now, one of the letters you have as a document in this book, as an illustration, shows that by this time paper was getting scarce. Paper was very scarce, and there's conversation in some of the letters about trying to find paper and get hold of paper. Um, you see that in the, the uh, David Golightly Harris diary from Spartanburg County, too. Paper becomes one of those commodities that you just can't find. Well, describe the letter that's illustrated in here, how they made one of the things mm-hmm. they may do with the paper shortage. They did cross writing, which um, I am glad I didn't have to decipher those. Um, actually, the editor's aunt had done the, the uh, transcribing of most of these letters. But they would write in one direction, and then they would write across the page, and then they would shift the paper, and they would write across the page this way. And so you really had to develop an eye for deciphering that script and staying with one line and then turning and staying with another line. And it was not easy, but it was how they preserved paper. Tracy Power is here in the audience, and he'll mm-hmm. tell you there are a couple of letters in the Carolinaana where they not only are writing this way and this way, but they're also writing this way and this way wow. so that there are six different ways to read that letter. And I didn't have to transcribe that one either. I just, I couldn't. And it was, it was very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned David Golightly Harris's diary from Spartanburg County. And a lot of people think about 
the war and what was happening in, in Charleston or mm-hmm. Columbia. Um, but the world of the upcountry is, is frequently forgotten. Yes. Now, his wife, Emma, by the time you get to 1864, she is more than <laughs> disenchanted. She is fed up. <laughs> She's fed up with the war. She had, After her husband goes to war, he had kept this journal for a number of years. She continues the daily farm journal. And there's one entry in there. She said, the government is trying to requisition one-fourth of our hands. I have given my husband to the war, and that's all I'm going to do. <laughs> she had done her part. <laughs> we mentioned the paper shortage, but on the home front, there were all sorts of shortages. Yes. Um, by the end of the war, the Moors and the Andersons are having a terrible time getting salt. They're willing to pay almost any amount of money for salt. Um, and so a lot of the letters back and forth have to do with that. Of course, cloth, sugar, those are all in short supply. Salt, of course, was absolute, without refrigeration, mm-hmm. was absolutely necessary for the preservation of meat. And one of the things that resourceful Southerners did, and I still don't know how it exactly worked out, is they began to dig up the floors of smokehouses. Mm-hmm. If they'd been used over the years, the salt would have been dripping mm-hmm. into the floor. They would then boil it, and I guess they somehow separated the dirt from the salt, and they used. Now, on the coast, they were trying to get salt using evaporating pans, but once the Union fleet had come in, the blockade, we've talked about that, mm-hmm. they were also venturing up the, the rivers near Georgetown. Those salt pan operations mm-hmm. ceased. And most of the salt in South Carolina had come from the Midwest, Mm -hmm. from Kentucky and Ohio and places like that. So I say Kentucky Midwest, but it was not one of the southern states. Mm -hmm. Did the the ladies who were writing, I'm I'm trying to remember, they didn't share too many of the privations with their... They did not, at least not later in the war. Early in the war, they are, uh, especially 1861 and early 1862, there are two or three of these correspondents who are teenage girls. And they're harassing their brothers who are off in the, in Charleston or at the front about, can you get me some turkey, which was, was turkey red yarn or thread? Uh, can you get me this color? Can you get me some sheet music? Um, and and those kinds of letters, really, that kind of comment ceases to exist later on in the war. Um, they're not so concerned about these sort of mundane things anymore. Another wonderful account by a young teenager who lived only about three blocks from here, Emma LeConte, daughter of a college professor. She talks about the fact that her family had rescued a loom out of a barn somewhere, and they mm. were weaving linsey woolsey cloth for underwear, which would have been very uncomfortable. Uh, (laughs) uh, But she also mentions how she and her friends, obviously not buying any new dresses, Mm -hmm. they were turning them. Uh, They hadn't quite gotten to scarlet and the draperies yet, Uh, but they, they they were making do. And... There's a wonderful older book, and folks, if you haven't read it, I think you should, and that's by Mary Elizabeth Massey, who for years was a mm-hmm. professor at Winthrop, and she wrote a book called Ersatz in the Confederacy, substitutes that they made mm-hmm. to manage to get along, and some of them were, were, were extreme. You remember some of those? I don't remember any Okay, of well, I got, I got there. I knew I, you would have a store. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in, in years past, we've talked about what people did at the siege of Vicksburg, and people were eating anything. In Columbia newspapers by 1864, there were recipes for squirrel. Some would say that a substitute, if you had a rat, that that would, that would do. <laughs> and there were, this, I think, is in Emma's diary. There was a friend who had a canary, and the preacher was coming for dinner on oh my. on Sunday, and Mama made canary soup for... Oh. <laughs> you see advertisements for, they called it, it was a charcoal paste, and it was for brushing your teeth. But they said with, with the residue, 
that that was good for cleaning your drapes, so I'm not exactly sure. Hmm. It might have freshened your breath and cleaned your teeth, but I... (laughs) (laughs) Well, it would have absorbed odors, so maybe that was (laughs) the idea. And one of the things that we take for granted today that were commonplace everywhere would have been coffee. Mm -hmm. Coffee was an import. Mm -hmm. So there were substitutes. Yes. Chicory by itself. I have seen ground-up cottonseed. I have seen recipes for using daylily roots, which I thought were poisonous, but parched corn was a favorite. Mm -hmm. But you can imagine, you know, having your daily cup of parched corn. um, Well, and by the end of the war, corn is bringing nearly $25 a bushel. So, you know, that was high-priced Coffee. Now, is that is that in real money, or is that it, or as Mary Chestnut said, it's <laughs> in Confederate? Well, in Confederate, in, in Confederate, <laughs> because one of the problems, and maybe not so much the, fam- the families in here, because they were self-sustaining farmers, mm-hmm. is that every the inflation in the Confederacy was absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. In 1864, there were bread riots in. Mobile and Savannah. Mm -hmm. The year before, there'd been one in Columbia people don't often think about, Mm -hmm. and Richmond. Uh, The sheriff knew exactly who did it, but it was the wives of poor soldiers who lived out of town. And one of these young women had written a letter to the editor of the Daily South Carolinian saying, my husband gets $11 a month. That was what a Confederate private was paid in 1863. And she said, a cord of wood to heat my house costs 50 bucks, $50. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned coffee at 20, mm-hmm. or parched corn at, at $25 a bushel. How could these people, how are these people surviving? It was, it was desperate. And this is why enthusiasm for mm-hmm. the cause is beginning to flag. I mean, mm-hmm. life is truly hard for everybody regardless of, of class, mm-hmm. uh, but particularly those in urban areas. And uh, in the upcountry, a problem they faced was the presence of refugees who had come from the coast. And it was very difficult often, even though a lot of those refugees did have assets that they were willing to pay for lodging, they often uh, were unable to provision them. And so that was a real challenge. And uh, there's a record of the Grimble family who came from Colleton County who stayed at St. John's College, which was a a college on the grounds of of what is now Converse College. They were trying to exchange assets for their room and board and for their provisions. The uh, president of the college, they brought several slaves with them. The president of the college would lease those slaves out, hire those slaves out in an effort to generate some kind of income so they could could get enough food and clothing and supplies to feed these refugees. The refugees were a problem, I shouldn't say a problem, but Columbia in 1860 had a population of 8,000. By 1864, it had a population of 25,000. So you're talking about straining resources. And at the same time that the home front is having difficulty, the relief organizations in South Carolina are assembling a boxcar load Mm -hmm. of food, clothing, blankets, comfort items, and shipping it to the Virginia Theater every week until the end of 1864. And somewhere, the women who are managing the Confederate rest, the soldiers' rest here in Columbia, Mm -hmm. Over the three years, it's an operation served 75,000 meals. Mm-hmm. It's amazing what was shared. Yes. People were willing to share, but at the same time, that what they, they had at home. Um, Jefferson Davis came to Columbia, and Mary Borkin Chestnut talks about what they ate. You'd never have thought that there was any hunger. And the, the Anderson and Moore men are writing from the front saying, send us another box. The rations we get from the government aren't fit to eat. And so there are all these efforts to send them meat, to send them meal, cornmeal, uh, flour, whatever they've got from home. And then the difficulty of getting it there. And there was one complaint from a Spartanburg aid organization the women had raised money and bought provisions for for the South Carolina men and it went into the hands of some Virginia men and they were not happy about that that was for the <laughs> South Carolina boys <laughs> and one of the things that became a part of 
a sad part of every everyday life for those at home were the casualty lists. Mm-hmm. Now, I know in Greenville, because they did not yet have a telegraph mm-hmm. in Greenville, they came up by train, and there was a clergyman who every day would stand on the back of a buckboard and read the casualty list from the fronts. Mm-hmm. Of course, we got remember, we've got two fronts. It's not just, by 1864, it's not just Virginia. There is, we can say a western front, but it really is a southern mm-hmm. front, um, because by 1864, Sherman is eventually in Atlanta and then in Savannah. Yes. Now, there are two or three extremely interesting letters mm-hmm. in your book, Up Country, South Carolina Goes to War, and those are letters written by enslaved people. Yes. Let's talk about that, because they weren't supposed to be able to read and write. That's right. A historian who's written on African Americans in the upcountry area of South Carolina has speculated, I don't think he has a huge amount of evidence, but he speculated that, that perhaps because... There were relatively fewer slaves in the upcountry. There was a more relaxed attitude toward things like teaching slaves to read. But there were slaves who did know how to read. In these cases, these are two slaves who have gone off as manservants for the Moors and the Andersons, and they're writing back to the overseer to give messages to their wives. And they were fairly literate. They were as literate as some of the members of the family in terms of... And what were they saying? uh, They were just asking, you know, about what's going on. They're saying things like, uh, you know, uh, Master John's taking good care of me. um, And particularly asking that messages be communicated to the wives. Tell my (laughs) wife I'm okay, that I'm looking forward to being home, that kind of thing. Assurances of safety, which you find in all the letters. The the troops are constantly saying, you know, let everybody know I'm okay. Um, it, it, there was, um, after Andrew Charles Moore is killed at the Battle of, of uh, Second Manassas, his brother, who writes home to tell the family about his death, said, well, uh, I caught some grape shot, but it hit me in the shoulder, and my cartridge box was there, and so I really wasn't wasn't hurt. This constant reassurance on the home front. And that was an important part of the the morale. Now, one of the things that you did see before the war is individuals, particularly those who were Baptists and Presbyterians, would petition Mm -hmm. to be able to teach their slaves to read and write because if everyone is a believer, you've got to be able to read the Scripture yourself. Mm -hmm. And so there are petitions from the upcountry, not not from the low country, yeah. but from small congregations mm-hmm. and individuals wanting to be able to teach their, their slaves to read and write. Yes. And I think some of that probably does have to do with the smaller concentration mm-hmm. of, of enslaved people in the upcountry, and they're less of a threat. The Harrises had, what, four or five? They had fewer than ten slaves. They, uh, yeah, six or seven at various points. Yeah. And what about the Andersons and the Moors? They were quite prosperous. Um, they, The Andersons, there were different branches of the Anderson family, and they had anywhere from 15 to 23 slaves, same with the Moors. Um, so these were quite prosperous people. And Spartanburg County was a major cotton-producing county. Greenville never was, but Spartanburg was. But even there, by the time of the war, most families in Spartanburg aren't producing huge amounts of cotton. They're producing a bale or two of cotton. They're producing a lot of corn and some other grains and some livestock. Emily Harris complained about what the government wanted. And by 1864, folks, the Confederacy had put in a graduated income tax, and it had passed a law whereby, I guess you might call it the tithe, because 10% of all agricultural produce was to be turned over to the Confederate government. Uh, And sometimes, as in the case of Emily Harris points out, they wanted one-fourth of her workforce. It sometimes got more than that. Former Governor and Senator James Henry Hammond was irate when Confederate authorities came to requisition some of his slaves for work on Charleston fortifications. And then he claimed after he was reimbursed that that, that they had cheated him. 
So ironically, the Confederacy seceded because they didn't like what was happening from a strong government, but the government that they had was actually doing things that they were not doing in the North. There was a farmer, Lewis Wesley Rast, over in Lexington County, and we have part of his farm journal that was actually kept in a a book. He was using the end pages of a book by 1864, Mm -hmm. and he reported how many bushels of wheat, how many bushels of corn, and then he had two columns, and he said, mine for the government. Mm -hmm. And it had become illegal to sell cotton unless you uh, took out a bond promising to use those profits for war materials. So the Confederacy is suddenly interfering in people's lives in ways that people couldn't have imagined four years earlier. Well, you have a nation at war. Yes. People are willing to make sacrifices, Mm -hmm. but then sometimes there reaches a point where they just, particularly when you deal with inflation, not Mm -hmm. being able to feed yourselves, And the Confederacy did some interesting things in terms of helping, so did South Carolina. The Confederate printing plant here in Columbia, the only people hired were widows of soldiers. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the war, all of that money that says printed in Richmond was actually being printed right down here on the corner of Gervais and UG. But South Carolina actually had relief funds that they gave to counties during the war. White South Carolinians were drawing relief from the government because they simply had no other means of survival. Yes. And in Greenville, they did it on what used to be market day, giving out of, Mm -hmm. of funds. And here in Columbia, in addition to what the government was doing, there were private charity and one of the biggest private charities in terms of distribution of foodstuffs was Trinity Episcopal Church. It had viewed itself as an old English parish Mm. of giving food to the poor, which it had done before the war. But the communion alms book, where the monies came from, it still exists. And the amount of food that was distributed after the war began, it goes up literally month by month. Mm. And entries like $5 to help a poor child go find her father or someone to go to the front because the railroads were working and the Confederate hospitals weren't so great. So if you wanted to take care of your loved one, sometimes wives, sisters went to the front. Andrew Charles Moore's sister, Mary Means, goes to the front after he is killed at Second Manassas uh, and spends days looking for her other brother, Thomas John Moore, and also looking for her husband, Sam Means, who has been wounded, and trying to locate them so that she can take care of him and and bring her husband's or her brother's body home. Was she successful? Uh, she did eventually find them, but it was she writes these poignant letters about searching and searching and searching and not knowing whether she's going to find them. Would you like to read? A portion of one of those? Sure. This is September 26, 1862, from Culpeper Courthouse. Uh, Margaret Anna Moore means to Thomas W. Hill, who I believe was the overseer. You will be surprised to hear I have not seen Thomas or Mr. Means, who was her husband, Sam Means. I got to Warrington Sunday evening, hunted everywhere for Thomas, at last found a pool of the same company, and pool was the last name said he saw him next morning after the battle on his way to bury Bud, who was Andrew Charles Moore. He was not wounded. Lee Smith told us on the way he was wounded and at Warrington. So she's getting conflicting reports about whether her brother has been wounded or not. I feel almost sick about not seeing any of them. I would try to go to the Army but can't get there. The Yankees are very near us. Troops are coming and going all the time. I have seen thousands of men, but knew none. We are almost starved. The Yankees have destroyed everything. And she goes on talking about the Yankees and the difficulties in traveling. And then she says, um, excuse this, Louisa, excuse this, Louisa, who was a cook, uh, wants to go home to work. We will get there sometime next week. And so she's headed home. I was just looking here. One of the letters that struck me when I was going going through was Colonel Benjamin Brockman to his oldest sister, Mary. Uh, and this is dated Richmond, 
May 24, 1864. So I want you to just try to get the sort of matter-of-the-fact way he explains mm-hmm. a situation. Dear Sister Mary, I had been unfortunate in losing my left arm in the Battle of the 12th of May, the bloodiest fight of the war. Jesse was wounded, I expect, dangerously and fell into the hands of the enemy. Poor fellow, the only brother I had is now perhaps cold in death, but we have to submit to these things. He was, as I am informed, acting with distinguished valor when he was shot. Excuse the short note. My respects to your husband and your son. Imagine the impact on Mary Brockman when she got that letter. And Ben, who's writing the letter, is also going to die that same year. Just think, when we talk about the home front, people trying to carry on normally, Mm -hmm. one of the interesting statistics, if you look at the church registers in Columbia, of course the population has tripled, but the number of marriages has just gone up. I mean, this happens in wartime, but Mm -hmm. the number of marriages has increased tremendously. And also the account of funerals. Sometimes people got married, as I said, got married, but the celebrations were subdued, as Mary Chestnut would record, because the family is in mourning. There was no reception. There was no gala, a simple Mm -hmm. church wedding. Now, in 1862, you're already seeing, particularly from the women on the home front, this image of the Yankees as Satan incarnate. Yes. By the time you get to 1864... That is even stronger. Mm-hmm. And you may have a passage that you want to... Uh, by 1864, I'm not sure. There weren't very many letters from the women by 1864. Okay. Actually, none in the entire year of 1864. Um, from the women, okay. From the women. All right, I just remembered that not just the one you read, but earlier that they were... The Yankees, anything that bad happened, the Yankees were responsible. Yes. If you read the diary of Emma LeConte, she does talk about, she writes on December the 31st, 1864, the last day of the year, what a sad, sad year it has been for our country. And you have to remember, in, and sometimes students forget mm-hmm. when they are reading the letter, that she's talking about the Confederacy. She's not talking about mm-hmm. the United States. She talks about the only thing between us and Sherman is the Savannah River and a group of old men. She uses a phrase that has been etched, how we hate them with the depths of our soul, to the depths of our souls. Now, if you wonder why the lost cause (laughs) would come into existence after the war, and that's a discussion for a whole other program, you can see the seeds Mm -hmm. of it in the particularly in the letters and diaries of the women during the war. It was their husbands are gone, their brothers are being killed, and this family, the families here, as you say, three families each lost a son. Almost a third of the eligible mm-hmm. white males in South Carolina died in the war. Mm-hmm. Now just think, stop it. One third of the eligible white male population was killed. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who had really good European history courses, and I hope most of you did at some point, the Great War that supposedly destroyed a generation of Germans, French, English, Russians, the percentages were about 14 or 15 percent. So if that was a lost generation in Europe, in South Carolina, where this was the highest casualty rate in the Confederacy, Mm -hmm. it's double the rate, death rate of the lost generation in the Great War mm-hmm. in Europe. So you can begin to understand why the women really are holding it together yes, at home. They sometimes are. barely. Often barely. Um, and in families that have been torn apart by war, uh, for example, the Moore family, Andrew Charles Moore is killed in battle, then their mother dies in uh, the fall. She dies just before Andrew Charles Moore is killed. And suddenly Thomas John Moore, who was one of the younger sons and had been kind of, I wouldn't say he was a ne'er-do-well, but he was having a good time sowing his wild oats. 
And suddenly he discovers that he's the heir to the family plantation. And so you find these letters by the end of the war he, he, back to the overseer trying to his, – his plantation is being managed by a stepfather, and he's trying to find out what's going on with the plantation and, and feeling this great responsibility. He says to his overseer on uh, October 3rd, 1864, I want some information as to what arrangements are being made for carrying on the farms, whether or not you will be detailed, drafted, and if so, if the state authorities will let you stay there. He's really concerned that his overseer is going to get drafted and then who's going to look after his family's assets. And he has all these younger sisters who are still at home and he's responsible for them. He says, I also want to get your advice, believing you will give me that that is good. I do not like the way matters are arranged. Sam's, Dr. Foster, and my business, and these are all in-laws in the family, all of our business is too much mixed up. It seems to me that it would be better if Dr. Foster's Negroes were taken away and a division of Negroes' hands, stock, or in fact everything that belongs to Sam and me was made and have his affairs separate from mine. He's being forced to worry about this while living in camp in northern Virginia. So that that constant pull of home and not already seeing he doesn't know what he's going to come back to, whether there's going to be anything left, is weighing very heavily on his mind. For folks in the upcountry, now there's, there have, don't to remind you, there have always been tensions between the upcountry and the low country. <laughs> Charleston, of course, by this time is pretty much a ghost city mm-hmm. because the Union is shelling and everything below Calhoun Street's pretty much mm-hmm. deserted. But the 25,000 people here in Columbia, there were complaints from soldiers from the upcountry about, and it's in the newspapers in the upcountry, about the parties and the balls and the galas that are still going on in Columbia. In fact, in December 1864, the women of Columbia are planning a grand bazaar to raise money for the Confederacy. And if you read the descriptions of it, think the big party in Gone with the Wind where Scarlet is the widow Mm -hmm. and she decides to dance with Rhett Butler. But that was exactly what was taking place. They were going to use the state house and every state was to have a representation of items to be sold for the Confederacy. Now, given the fact that they couldn't get across the Mississippi to Louisiana, Arkansas and and Texas, it made it a little... But there were booths there anyway. And they eventually had to move the date up because the date schedule was right about the time that Sherman actually did get to Columbia in 1865. So they moved it up into early January. But all of December, the big news is, what are we going to auction off? What are we going to have? And this is where somebody might not be able to give a good soup to the preacher, but somehow the kitchen produces an aspect that will be (laughs) or some calf's foot jelly, or a cake. Mm -hmm. Now, sugar was also kind of precious, that that Mm -hmm. cake might have been made with a sugar substitute. Molasses, which wouldn't have been too bad, but other things, sweeteners, Mm -hmm. were kind of, it wasn't the kind of cake you would have necessarily made before. And flour, of course, was was precious. So they frequently used rice flour instead of, wheat flour. So again, it's, it's, it's a hard time. Very hard time. And they're continually getting this pressure from the men on the front. Send me some sausage, send some butter. And families back home are trying to provision their men. They are shipping supplies specifically to men in what they called our mess or our unit. Um, but then there are complaints that, um, in this letter from Thomas John Moore, I would be glad to have a supply of sausage meat somehow or another. There are some men in my mess, Charles Barry, for instance, and others, who do very little to the support of the mess, and I do not care to feed them. <laughs> well, there's, an, there's another letter about the mess, and this is from Franklin Lulam Anderson mm-hmm. at Nottaway Bridge, Virginia, in October 1864, uh, writing to his, his niece, and I'm just from the picket post and find no one at home in the mess, having finished my breakfast of cold biscuit and gravy. 
and that biscuit might have been hard enough to break his mm-hmm. teeth, just about hardtack. Yeah, you needed the gravy just to soften <laughs> <Yes>. it up. <laughs> now, see, they're asking for sausage, and you're going to need some spices. Mm-hmm. Salt. Salt. Where that, where's that? If you don't have it by the time it gets there, I used to get, when I was in Vietnam, got care packages, and some lovely ladies who'd send me pound cakes, and by the time they got there... <laughs> they were they were because they were made the real way but you know they were a little bit green but there was not a man in my unit who would not have a piece of the pound cake <laughs> listen some of the rations were as old as i was we were eating world war ii <laughs> so when, when you're and your when, body develops some tolerance yeah. to those <laughs> microbes <laughs> Melissa, if you were having to sum up the upcountry in the last this last full year of the war, 1864, how would you do that? Oh, there were shortages, there were hardships, there were worries about slave revolts. And you don't see that in this set of letters, but you do see that in Emily Harris's diaries while her husband is off to war. There were worries about the Yankees coming and particularly worries about Sherman coming. There are complaints about the refugees who are taking resources and sometimes doing it in a very high-handed fashion, in a very entitled fashion. And mostly there's just fatigue. People want their families reunited. They want life to go back to normal, and they realize it's never going to be the same again. I think that's one of the things is the war weariness that has set in 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 64. There's also beginnings of public anger yes. at politicians. Here in Columbia in 1864, Wade Hampton's house over on Blanding Street was broken into. Anti-war graffiti was scribbled on the walls. Mm-hmm. Over in the PD, there were people who had been members of the secession convention that thought they were receiving threats for what had happened. So it's a different world, but part of it's the war weariness. Yes. We've talked about the the military actions uh, in 1864 and the fact that the South hung on in 1864 militarily was absolutely amazing. But the number of men who continued to perish in the fight, just very sad. Very sad. Well, I think we might want to open this up now for some questions. Well, let's see. A hand went up over here first. I'll get, I'll get you, but a hand, <laughs> hand over here on the, on the left. You talked about South Carolina and the upcountry. What was happening up north? Were they going through the same thing? Were there privations in the north? Not to that level. Um, Not so many shortages. They were pretty much able to get most of what they needed because they could still import and export. But one of the things you do have, the casualty rates were not as high, but if you look at the music that was produced, the popular music that was produced during the war, north and south, things like the vacant chair, a family gathering, and there's a vacant chair. In both North and South, young men went to fight for the, with the local militia unit. So if, if a particular unit mm-hmm. were in a battle, you might have a good portion of the young men from one town wiped out. And so it just depended upon the location. There was also anger about the draft in the North, the draft riots that happened a year earlier, because in the North, people could buy substitutes. Well, they could in the South as well. But in South Carolina, very few people avail themselves of. Couldn't say the same thing about Virginia and Georgia, Mm -hmm. where people did. There were also exemptions from the draft. And South Carolina had more exemptions than most states, but they did have far fewer substitutes. Yes, but even so, a lot of people who were technically exempt from the draft went because, Mm -hmm. like I say, if you look at the, the population figures, it's pretty close to almost everyone who was eligible, mm-hmm. white male, between 18 and 45, went to mm-hmm. war. But the exemptions were galling, particularly to boys from the upcountry, because if there, you had to have an adult male on a plantation with a certain number of slaves, if you work for the railroad, you get some letters, they're not in these letters, but it's a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. Mm-hmm. Because where are the majority of the enlisted men coming from in South Carolina? They're coming from the upcountry. Mm-hmm. I think there's a figure in um, in your book, South Carolina History, that 
80% of the men in Lancaster serve, 80% of the eligible white men served. That's astounding. Okay. We know disease and illness have a big effect on the troops. Uh, what about that same thing, you know, back on the home front? Disease? These letters are riddled with people reporting various health ailments. And sometimes it's hard to tell what it is, whether it's an infectious disease or in some cases, I know David Anderson, the the patriarch of the Anderson family, uh, he has arthritis and rheumatism, as he put it, and and that's often keeping him in. But but you do see throughout these letters uh, the constant presence of disease. And producing medicines, mm-hmm. again, a lot of these were imported. I mean, the medicines were made up north or in Europe, and they were mm-hmm. imported. And that source of supply, of course, you've always got wonderful old home remedies, but, but there were no major outbreaks of cholera and that kind of thing uh, that I can recall right off the, no, I don't off think the so. top of my which you might have expected with the, with the refugee population, mm-hmm. but didn't happen. All right. You talked about the horrendous rate of uh, death. What about the percentage of amputees and, and, and all of that? Who's running the bar? The question is, what about those who were wounded? And we've had a discussion of military medicine. And, of course, if you were, if you were shot in a limb with what they were using in the Civil War, amputation was the only answer. Mm-hmm. What percentage? They usually say about another third in addition to those that were were killed mm-hmm. would have been would have been wounded and you know again with all due respect to my my doctor friends the medicine in the civil war was just yeah. it was it, it wasn't just okay they amputate it but he's been amputating all morning and he's never bothered to clean his his hands or his saw yeah but if you look at the pictures of confederate veterans reunions mm-hmm. The number of missing arms, missing legs, in the late 19th century, it was almost 50% of the budget of the state of Mississippi was yeah. for prostheses. This is not off topic here, but I want to talk about what, if any, level of abolitionist activity will see tolerated in the upstate at that time when it was imminent that the South was going to go to war. I don't know of any abolitionist sentiment that was openly expressed in the upstate. Uh, Even unionists shut their mouths once secession happened. So I don't know of any. No, you don't don't see much anti-slavery. What you do see is concern about slave rebellions, Mm -hmm. and there are several instances where alleged plots are Mm -hmm. discovered and slaves are hanged, and that gets wide distribution, which is interesting because do you want to spread that idea Mm -hmm. but it's in the newspapers Uh, Mm -hmm. there were several in the PT alleged plots Mm -hmm. which were summarily the slaves were executed they were hanged and there's a in Phil Racine's book there's a really interesting case of a slave who a female slave in Spartanburg who was sentenced to be hanged we don't know how the case turned out but Dozens of prominent South Carolinians, including the governor, write or someone from the governor's family write petitioning for a clemency for her because they said she was driven to it. He was so cruel to her. Um, so I think you do see more and more of these episodes of resistance, of fighting back, of uh, hiding Yankee deserters, all kinds of stuff. Uh, where slaves are just not falling into line anymore. In fact, remember, we had Union prison camps here in Mm -hmm. the Columbia area. Just today, I got a a paper from a young professor at Texas A&M who has tracked down the number of Union POWs who escaped in 1864-65. I haven't had a chance to read it, but it is several thousand, and they're running around South Carolina somehow. Mm -hmm. Who's, Who's harboring them? You had a question down here, too. With everybody trying to send food to the troops and the troops requesting it, it must have been a thriving business. Who took on the risk of whether people <laughs> were willing to run the coats of blockade to get the food there? And all that? Well, the, the railroads were still working, and there was a statewide organization 
here in Columbia, and they would collect foodstuffs from around the mm-hmm. state, and they would ship it in a railroad car to the Virginia. They never sent anything to the Western Theater, which I've always thought was interesting because a lot of South Carolinians were out there. But it was to the Virginia Theater, to the Virginia Front. And the railroads were still working until almost the very end of the war, interestingly enough. Uh, they might have had to shift cars every now and then because, not, remember, the Confederacy didn't have a standard gauge. And and there were families who had slaves, for example, would send a trusted slave with a shipment to a particular unit. So there's a lot of, of going back and forth. Okay. Did the North attempt to counterfeit Confederate currency, and if so, did it impact? I don't know that they did, but they didn't need to confirm it. <laughs> you, you talk about printing money. Uh, it's worth a lot more now than it was to the folks in 1864. The Confederacy also issued bonds. And I have seen in, in collections the bonds. They might have you know, clipped several coupons so they redeemed, but they didn't get much. There's a whole lot of them that, to still be to still be clipped. Now the bonds today are worth not quite their face value, but they're worth something. Okay, you have some more. You said there were an increase in marriages on the whole front. Were these marriages spun by love of necessity? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. <laughs> I think we saw this again, particularly in World War II. People got swept up in this this wartime romance thing. They they fall in love with someone, and they want to marry before he goes off to war. And so some of these, I'm sure most of them were love matches at the time, but whether they remained lifelong loves, that's another story. I don't really have a question, but there's a plaque at Trinity that is dedicated to the people that died, the young men that died in the Civil War. And I can tell you, at least there's a 14-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 16-year-old, and a 17-year-old in that plaque. Well, by, by the end of the war, as Emma Kant talks about, they are drafting young men as young as 14 into service. Got to put somebody between Sherman and South Carolina. You've either got the invalids or the old men. Mm-hmm. That's what she talks about, the, the old men. She says, nothing between us, men, old men and boys. Okay. What was the role of the clergy, both north and south, during the Great War? The role of the clergy, well, in, in both armies, there were revivals. Religion was extremely important. Uh, there were chaplains in both Confederate and, and Union armies. But there were a number of revivals, particularly in the Confederate armies that I, that I know of. And, of course, on the home front, one of the roles of the clergy was to console. Mm-hmm. The Andersons and Moores were uh, among the founding members of the oldest church in Spartanburg County, Nazareth Presbyterian. And that church continues to show up in the home front letters. It's the center of a lot of their activity. Is, is there a reason that South Carolina had the highest percentage of deaths of any mm. of the states within the Confederacy? I mean, it just boggles my mind to think that that would be the case. Well, we're talking percentages now. We're not talking absolute numbers. Mm-hmm. We're talking percentages. And the Union state that had the largest percentage of kill was Vermont. You know, and it's it's some of it was... Uh, and Melissa mentioned the Lancaster militia units, a couple of those companies were almost wiped out in a single battle. Mm-hmm. So it was population, um, and so South Carolina was a state with a smaller population. Yes, the white population of South Carolina was relatively small compared to the other states. So when we talk about one-third of the eligible male population between 18 and 45, we're talking about percentages here, not not mm-hmm. absolute numbers. So, I mean, that, I believe that, the figure was what 60,000 white men yeah. are of eligible age in, in South Carolina. Ironically, the death toll continues to climb because as records become available through the internet, mm-hmm. they are tracing down because many of them were just 
missing in action. Nobody really knew what happened. Mm-hmm. Organizations such associated with the Historical Society in Charleston, they've been collecting that data, and the numbers conti- literally continue to, to rise. Mm-hmm. What, what is it at now? It's, it's well over 20,000. Mm-hmm. It's well over 20,000. From South Carolina. For, wow. South, for, South, for South Carolina. It was high because, one of, as, as one of our speakers pointed out a couple of weeks ago, the Confederacy was running out of manpower. Mm-hmm. There were suggestions in the Confederate Congress of arming the slaves. That was debated in 1864. Mm-hmm. In Louisiana, they had already accepted, in fact, at the beginning of the war, they had accepted mixed-race units. The free persons of color in this state volunteered, and the state refused to take them into service. The Free Blacks of Charleston volunteered. Okay, folks, I would like to thank you for coming out to our lectures, and we'll see you next year. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. It was a pleasure to have a friend and colleague like Melissa Walker from Converse back on the journal and to talk about what's often the unsaid or the forgotten part of warfare. What was happening back home to the women, children, to the enslaved persons, to the elderly? Their world was very much changed by the war as it progressed, and by 1864, as we found out, things were pretty dire indeed. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina ETV Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed by the guests on Walter Edgar's journal are their own and are not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio.